Hello, everyone. This is Manoj Tandon, your host. Welcome to another episode of Dark Rhino Security, Security Confidential. Today, we are honored to have another great guest join us, Andre Walls. Andre is the EVP and CISO for Customers Bancorp. Customers Bank, he provides leadership to the bank's technology, risk, digital compliance, security operations, and more. He has held all three C-level roles in the technology industry as an award-winning CIO, CTO, and CISO. He was recently recognized as one of the top 40 under 40 leaders in the greater Philadelphia region, is a 2021 top 100 CISO, was recognized as a top 10 global CISO in 2020, and received an American Cyber Awards honor in 2020. He's attended Capella University in Minnesota in information technology and Yale University School of Management for executive education. Welcome to the show, Andre. So glad you could join us. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, Andre, um, with that kind of a background, uh, we're a little curious. Uh, give us, how did you get into cybersecurity? I mean, it sounds like you could have gone into anything you wanted. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. I started my career out in IT. Um, and even, even that was an accident. I got an IT job over the summer. Um, uh, my first job was working for Briars, the okay. ice cream company. Really? And, um, yeah. And I was, it was just a summer job and I was a hardware technician, which is, you know, the guy that when your computer breaks, I come and pick up your broken computer and I put the working computer down and then I take the broken computer back to people who fix it. That's literally what I got paid for. Okay. Um, <laughs> and started getting more interested in, in tech and networks, um, decided to stay on. Um, next thing I know I'm working on servers and I'm working on networks and, um, fast forward a couple of years, I, I get a project management opportunity or chemical and, it just kind of went on from there, and I, I never really looked back. My fascination was always in networks. Okay. And, um, you know, I used to do the full-on networking thing, right? I was a Cisco certified guy and, you know, um, was, was big on networking. And through that, I got into security. So I designed some secure networks uh, for a couple of really large organizations, including GE Nuclear and and. Paul Hastings, Janowski, and Walker, wow. and doing some wide area stuff. And um, that's really where I got into the security aspect of it. And I never looked back. Wow. So you mentioned uh, General Electric, nuclear industry. Is that sector moving to the cloud? I'm just curious. You know, I don't know. Um, I would think that any prudent business starts looking towards the cloud um, not only for, for scale, um, for obvious cost savings, but I think also for security. The one advantage that the cloud offers you that a private infrastructure doesn't is security through obscurity to a certain level. Um, and also greater granularity of controls for tools that you don't have to manage, right? So, um, you know, the infrastructure becomes less of what you have to focus on and it becomes more about the tech and your borders and all of those pieces. Right. You know, <clears throat> there's one aspect there, though, where even if you're whether you're going with Google, Microsoft or Amazon as the, whatever your choice is for the cloud uh, applications, 
you still have to go through and make sure that you are configuring your application properly in the in the cloud uh, and not rely just on Amazon because they're only securing the infrastructure, right? I mean, it's up to you to right. secure the application. Right. Absolutely. Um, and that comes down to both your, your planning and your design process. I think what you do is, is you shift all of that design focus from the infrastructure to the apps, right? Because um, the infrastructure is spoken for. You don't have to worry about too much of it anymore. Um, but now you start paying attention to the platforms, operating systems, all your tools and tech. Um, and, and to me, for a security practitioner, becomes a little bit easier because the application I know better than anything else, right? Or at least I should. Um, and, and so you can take the opportunity to, to build out those controls that you need to secure the applications. And I think more importantly, the cloud gives you the ability to test it all too, right? Whereas, okay. you know, in a traditional infrastructure, you've got to duplicate the infrastructure in order to test. And here you are in a cloud environment, it's easy to be able to test your security controls. See, those are all uh, great reasons if there's people listening that are on the fence about moving to the cloud. Although I'll say that from the analytics we've gathered, most most people are cloud-first companies in our audience uh, that, that are going that way. But you still see a, a lot of folks where they're a little skittish. We see it more in the manufacturing se sector uh, where they have a traditional perimeter and they're like, wow, we're going to obliterate that perimeter, right, by going to the cloud, and we won't have that traditional approach anymore. To be honest, you know, the banking sector has, has been like that as well. But I think that part of that is also the regulators. So I think when you look at regulated organizations, we start talking about the, the government being involved in those regulations. Yeah. The government agencies aren't necessarily um, the most tech savvy. Yeah. Uh, organizations. I know some regulators are going to be pissed with me about yeah, that. Yeah, that, there is. <laughs> that's a very um, uh, polite yeah. way of putting it. I <laughs> <laughs> you know, there, you got some concerns there. I think, you know, from the regulator standpoint, um, cloud is a lot. There's more for them to pay attention to. So where, whereas they might come into your shop and pay attention to everything that's in your shop. Now they've got to look at your third parties and to a certain extent point they've got to look at your third parties, third parties, right? Those fourth party relationships. And that's the one thing that the cloud does, I think, to regulators is it obfuscates the the edges a little bit more. So yeah. it makes it more difficult for them to figure out where the boundaries are. But I, you know, I can tell you in the, the region that I'm in, um, our regulators are a lot more progressive. They have a they have a deeper pool of talent on the technology side, in my opinion. Okay, um, It's not that way everywhere in the country, but, but I think the Northeast has got it pretty covered. Wow. And uh, well, you know, speaking about your sector, what do you, what do the regulators or you see as the biggest threats to, in the financial sector? What concerns you guys in cyber? Yeah, I, I, I do think that the vendor relationships concern the regulators the most. Um, probably because if you look at the trends, the vendor relationships are where we see all the collapses coming from, right? You look at yeah. the, the, the five or six biggest breaches that have happened over the last five years, and they all have a vendor impetus. There's always, you know, sort of this, um, this third party that, you know, that the company thought was doing the right thing, that the user didn't even know existed, that, that that relationship existed, right? And, 
and someone makes a mistake, something wasn't clicked or, you know, a backup wasn't secure or something was forgotten. And now you have a breach of confidentiality that for the customer, they don't care who you were working with. That's not their problem. The problem is right. they gave their information to you and you lost it. Right. So I think the regulators are right from that standpoint that companies have to do more, a better job of due diligence, a better job of understanding their third and fourth party relationships. And in my opinion, a better job of articulating those relationships to the customer. Yeah. I, I mean, third party risk is a deep topic in our, our industry. How, as a matter of, uh, as a practical matter, does one go about assessing it? Because as you are rightfully saying, there's a lot of relationships that I, I think a lot of organizations don't even maybe may not know that they exist. Right. It is a problem. Um, you know, I think it starts, there's sort of two places where you have to start, you know, when, when you're just beginning to work with a vendor, it's a lot easier because you can make it part of your vetting process, right? And you can build some really good controls in there, some questionnaires, you can do site visits, you can do, you know, all kinds of stuff to give you some, some clarity and um, some comfort in those vendors' operations, both from a security standpoint, you know, perhaps depending on your industry from a legal standpoint, definitely from a financial standpoint, because we can't we can't understate the financial risk, right? You want to make sure that a company that you rely on to sell a service is going to be in business in five years, right? right. Um, you know, so so those risks are really important. You have to think about marketing risks, right? Um, how do they, and this is one um, that, that, that we focus on that a lot of companies, and, and I've found a lot of our peers don't. When you talk about your vendors from a, um, from a material marketing risk, right? What processes do they have in place for whistleblowers? What processes do they have in place for sexual harassment? These are some of the things that come into play that can hurt your company. If you're telling your, your customers that, hey, we also use this service, and now that service is on the news, not because they had a breach, but because they had, you know, some some huge sexual harassment claim or or some big news item that hurts your reputation. Reputation is everything in the digital age. And, um, you know, those things are very important, too. So I think when it's a new vendor, building out that program is easy. When it's an old vendor, um, I think that the time to strike is at contract renewal time. But also in between, um, even if you didn't build enough protections into existing contact contracts, you have the ability to sort of go back and tell those vendors, hey, we're going to check out some of your programs. We're going to scrutinize some of these things. Or we might look to leave. And I think in a lot of cases, there is defensibility for companies that decide to cancel a contract because the right protect because they can demonstrate that the right protections haven't been put in place, regardless of the fact that those things were or were not in the original contract. So you know, uh, that that brings uh, us to another interesting um, place. What do you do with vendors where they're providing core services? What you're saying makes a huge amount of sense. When you look at vendors that are doing one-off maintenance things, like uh, your copy machine maintenance guy who may come in sporadically to update the firmware or the software on the copiers, or uh, 
your HVAC guy that may update the firmware on the thermostats and things of that nature, they plug into your network. And a lot of those companies are really, really small. I mean, their definition of cybersecurity is, well, I got semantic on there. That's all I need. I, <laughs> I, I kid you not, you're laughing, <laughs> Andre, but I, I, they're like, well, I got Defender turned on and my definitions are up to date. What more? <laughs> what more do you need? Right? What more do I need? You know, that's that's cybersecurity. So <laughs> what do you and I'm sure you have those. I'm picking like your phone guy. You know, there's a there's a there's a thousand small little people that come in and rightfully need access to your network, but it's kind of dicey giving them that access because you don't know where the heck they're coming from. <laughs> So, so for that, I think the important thing is to set standards. Um, we have, uh, in, in my organization, a standards and architecture team. And their okay. job is to develop standards, both for in-house and for external. Um, and the idea is that we communicate up front to our vendors, hey, these are our standards. These are our base requirements. We trim it down based on the type of vendor. So for those smaller vendors that you're talking about, do we have as many requirements? No. We also, from a security profile standpoint, we isolate those companies' access more. And we also monitor and scrutinize the things that they do when they use their access more than we would some of those larger vendors. Um, but by giving them those standards up front, they know what the expectations are and you have good ways for them to be able to meet it. I do think while they are your vendors and they're not right. doing you any favors, right? Cause you're paying them for a service, right. right? I do think that there is something to be said about a partnership and security where you have the ability to provide your own security by partnering with them to strengthen their, um, you know, to strengthen their platforms and strengthen their capabilities. And, and there's a value add to you for the time investment that you make doing that. The, uh, that's a, that's a very good idea uh, where where we see uh, potential issues is because those vendors are so working with a lot of those small guys are working with a thousand different uh, companies out there. And while you can extend your protections to them, um, they may be skittish about putting some of those controls on their laptops or devices simply because they're working with a thousand other places and they don't know how that those controls will affect that. And then there's a little bit of the big brother aspect. Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't know that there's a perfect solution for this, there isn't. But, no. No. but if they want your business and it's enough business, I think it's well justified. For sure. Right. What, what about, you know, which brings to another topic, personal devices. I mean, we live in the moral mobile age here and I'm sure your employees have mobile devices that they are using at work and, uh, they've become ubiquitous. How do you secure those, the BYOD environment, or do you guys have a strict policy against that? Or how do you handle that? You know, it's, um, it is interesting. I think because, you know, from, from the corporate standpoint, there is a cost savings to be had by not having to have every user have two devices. Right. Right. Um, and, you know, to a certain standpoint, there's also a productivity efficiency side of this, too, yes. where, you know, if it's a personal device that they're doing Facebook on, they're also going to see that email at 830. Right. That might be critical. Um, so how we balance it 
is we explain to folks about the importance of visibility, where we don't need control, but we need visibility. So we leverage MDMs for us to be able to have visibility. The value add for the user is that they get corporate side protection for their device. So, you know, they know if they lose their device, we can wipe it. And those, you know, those pictures that they took in Cabo are going to be okay, right? Um, there, there are some advantages there to, to doing that. But I think it's about the conversation where you let your users know that the idea is not that you want to control their device. It's not that you want to have access to all of their personal information or even blur those lines. Um, but that instead, in order to provide them with access to corporate data, you've got to make sure that their, that their device is continuously okay. And the MDM allows you to do that. And there's ways to configure it so that you are providing that visibility and providing those security you know, pieces that you need in order to make yourself feel comfortable as a business, but at the same time, not encroaching on a user's privacy. It's the conversation that we always have um, both with, with our executives and, and, and our board, as well as our users. My organization is a fire department, right? Our entire purpose is to prevent fires as much as we possibly can. We hand out smoke detectors. We, we do Smokey the Bear, you know, graphics, and, and, we, and we get people to, to, to think critically about how they can prevent those fires, right? When a fire happens, because they're inevitable, our job is to make sure that there isn't a total loss of the structure. We wanna you know, shut down that fire as quickly as possible. We wanna minimize damage, we wanna minimize loss. Yep. And so that's who we are, we're a fire department. Most security organizations still wanna operate like a police department, where the idea is to enforce policy and to enforce procedure and, and, you know, and, and, and set the law and control this and control that, right? And, and, and manage all the bridges and all of that sort of stuff. The difference is no one ever tells the fire commissioner how to run a shop. You never see the mayor of some town saying these fires are out of control and I want the fire commissioner to do this and we need a civilian review board, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. <laughs> you know, everyone no, you wants to tell the police how to do it. Right. And yeah. I think that the difference is how people look at what it is that you're trying to do. If you're focused on prevention, if you're focused on being proactive and you're focused on helping people manage something that they themselves can't manage, the the entire psychology for those people around how they work with your and interact with your org is completely different from that police type of, of example. You know, that's brilliant. I That's a great way to put it. I think you're the first guest that's actually stated it that way. I That, that is such a fundamental difference. Um, we often characterize it as in uh, football playing zone defense, right? You, you're, you're managing the game. You know, the guy's, if he makes a catch, you just don't want him getting in the end zone. You minimize your damage, right? Right, right. right? But uh, you're not there to police. And, and you're exactly right. That makes a fundamental, there's a fundamental shift in culture that will occur in that kind of an approach versus thou shall not. And there's a lot of thou shall not going on around out there. Mm -hmm. There is, there really is. Um, even, you know, even in policy. So we've written our policies differently so that, you know, the, the policy is, is there to provide guardrails 
and then we specify the procedures that support those policies, giving some flexibility to the way that people implement those policies in their own business units. And we put the onus and responsibility back on the individual. Our job is not to police, you know, your job is to police yourself, but we're supposed to give you tools to make it easier and, and to simplify, you know, how you secure those different things. And in this industry, banking industry, you know, everything inside is a business unit anyway, right? You've got your loan unit and you've got your cash unit and, and so on and so forth in the branches and whatnot. So it makes it a lot easier, I think, um, to, you know, to really be able to provide people with the tools and change their mindset around how to secure their organization. This, well, there's two questions here then. First, like what you're saying is that's brilliant. How do you communicate the the risks, what the fire department sees, <laughs> if you will, to the C-suite in a manner that they're actually going to understand? That's question Every number month, one. Yeah, yeah. Every month, you know, we, we um, give a presentation to the board um, that includes all of our cyber stats. We tell them, where all of the threats are coming from and at what volume. We give them some analysis around the information that we're seeing and we give that to them in plain English. Um, we break down for them all of the internal risk elements. We do phishing tests every month. It might seem cumbersome, but it's become somewhat of a game to the folks in our organization now um, where you know the people just wanna see if they can get caught. And so we, we deliver some of the best um, phishing tests that we possibly can to, to trip people up. Our users like it. Um, and uh, we also run other um, uh, internal trainings that we do, interactive type, video type, and then we have some in-person type trainings that we do as well to kind of keep everybody engaged. And we include the C-suite in those activities. So it's not just the executive level stuff that they see. They're part of the training. Even our CEO gets a phishing test um, and kudos to him, he has yet to fail one. Um, and, you know, we, 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 keep it, we keep it really loose and really fun, um, but also really inclusive. And we ensure that people feel like they are, um, you know, deeply engaged in learning what those risks are. We also do an annual state of security uh, report that's delivered to the entire company. We, we give it to the board. Uh, but we okay. also give it to the rest of the company. We let them know what our strategy is. You know, our, our security organization is definitely not a black box. Everyone knows, you know, what we're into, what we're planning, what we're doing, what our roadmap is, and more importantly, how they fit in that roadmap. So given all that, do you think the C-suite uh, understands that cybersecurity is a business problem and not necessarily a technology problem, or is there still work to be done in that area? What? So I'll say in our organization, they understand it. I think that there's work to be done across the tech industry period. Um, there is a tremendous amount of focus on tech solutions. Um, yes. And, uh, you know, almost I, exclusively in some cases. Almost exclusively. Yeah. And, you know, I think that everyone sort of forgets about the people. Um, and probably the reason for that is that we never, we never focus on the postmortem. So the big story is company A, you know, got hacked by hacker group B, right? Right. And three months down the road, there's no, 
after this happened, this was how it was actually perpetrated. This employee clicked on a link and didn't realize that it was bad. And months had gone by before anybody even realized what was happening. Those postmortems are so rare um, that it stops an entire industry from remembering that the genesis for all of these things is a person. You know, there is literally no hacker just walking into a, a building anymore and, you know, breaking stuff. They right. had help. You know, a lot of times it was help that didn't know they were helping, but it was help. It was because of an email or it was because of a social, uh, you know, attack or whatever the case might be. Even if it's a misconfiguration mistake on the side of IT, that is still a people problem. It's not a tech problem. Because the tech is only going to do what you ask it to do. Right. You've got to have the right processes, the right people, the right procedures in place in order to ensure that the tech doesn't get unwieldy. That's exactly correct. And what you're saying is spot on. Yet, as you've stated, we it's rare. Uh, we see a lot of focus on technology. People are looking for, well, if I just do... If I just install an antivirus, now we got cybersecurity. I, I hate to say that. I've heard that so many times. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we got MFA or we got the MFA and right. uh, now we're all safe. <laughs> you right. know, it's like, right. no, it, it's a people problem. The genesis of it is absolutely an individual that unintentionally, probably with no malice, clicked something or did something. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, one, one of the things that, that I've been communicating pretty consistently over the last year as we've switched our strategy, we're focused on de-risking, right? So, um, you know, along with being proactive and doing all of those upfront proactive sort of things, we also want to de-risk as much as possible. We're starting to move towards... Um, you know, passwordless infrastructure. We're starting to move more towards set of traditional MFA push technology, right? right. Um, where where we can definitely know for sure that the device is the one that 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 we're talking to. And I think that if more CISOs started thinking about de-risking, which brings me to another point, but starts thinking about more about de-risking, um, we will see the entire industry shift from one that's less about the silver bullet technology and more about the conscious state of security, right? And, and how do we fold in all of those elements together? The tech should provide you with a certain level of enhancement so that the things that you can't do, you know, from an economy of scale standpoint, where you don't want to have a security organization with, you know, 50 engineers in it, because who can afford that? Or, you know, being able to, to, to parlay that into, you've got all of your users involved in the security operation. It's not a black box. This is something that everybody is a part of, um, conversations that everyone feels comfortable having. And they're not tech-driven conversations. They're people and process-driven conversations. I think that once we start getting to that point, we'll see some improvement. And, and you know, it's, um, so you are proactively bringing your end users into your cybersecurity program, into de-risking. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In that, how, give some, you, you've given a lot of ideas. I, I think people are the most underutilized ad, assets in a company they, from a cybersecurity perspective. Um, 
they they don't get brought in. A lot of times, if you talk to those users, they'll say, "Well, cybersecurity is a back office. You know, it's some guy in a hoodie in the back room somewhere <laughs> doing something." Right? How how did you create that culture? How how did you bring them in? You know, it it, it started um, four and a half years ago when I came here. Um, I I came in the spring and just a couple of months later, you know, like around October, um, it was time for the cybersecurity awareness month. And we always, the bank has always had a program where, you know, every week for four weeks, we put out different topics and um, got the users engaged in, in, in that effort. One of the things that I changed was changing the communication style to let people know that, hey, they're part of this team. Right. Okay. So when folks ask me how big my security organization is, I tell them I have, I think we have around 662 employees somewhere in that neighborhood right now. Um, and so however many employees we have, that's how many folks I have on my security team. Everyone's engaged from our CEO to the person who mans the front desk. Right. Um, and the reason why we have everyone engaged is because they're our biggest risk. Right. Yes. And that's something that we realize. All we need is that one person to click on that one link. And no matter how good all the other tech that we have is, we are right. going to have some issues. And so um, we've done a very, very good job, in my opinion, of getting our users more engaged, making them more uh, a part and removing that sort of black box, you know, guy with the hoodie on in the back room sort of right. sort of thing. I will say that. In order to get that to happen, in order to be successful in that, the security organization needs to be, in order to change the conversation, the security organization needs to be decoupled from IT. Security is not okay. a technology discipline, right? Um, security, you always see it folded in IT departments. Um, and I've never liked yes, that. Yes, it is. I've never liked that. Even when I was a CIO, um, I, I always had my security person have... Even if he was in my org, I had him have a dotted line to my boss, who was usually a chief operations officer or something like that. And the reason why I think that's important is because we're saying that security is about is a discipline, right? It's not about the technology. It's about the people. It's about those processes. When it's coupled with IT, it tends to take a backseat to IT's productivity needs. And IT is very it much does. about running the engine or in some cases, innovating the engine so that the business can run better, right? Um, enabling the engine, if you will. And so the because the purpose is different, when you have security coupled with IT organizations, you end up with a security department that's focused just on the governance of IT, the governance of technology, and not the proactive support from a security standpoint of the entire organization. See, that's one of the best arguments I've heard for taking the CISO's office out from under the CIO. And uh, we've, I, before we started the show, I said we were not going to do anything controversial. And this has been one of those controversial things yeah. where we do get comments back. And I'm going to be curious to see what people have to say about, about this. Uh, because we've gone on public record and said, you know, as an organization, we believe that as a fundamental strategy, it's generally a good idea to have the CISO not report to the CIO and, and separate that out for all the reasons that you just mentioned, every one of them. Um, 
you get into conflicts with, you know, the CISO in some ways is a critique of the CIO saying, look, you guys are putting these things in and, you know, they're, you're creating some gaps that um, now we need to close. And, and that, depending on the culture of the organization, that discussion may not go over so well. Yeah, right. I mean, it's, it's, it's absolutely true. In this organization, um, you know, our, our CIO, um, we have a chief administrative officer um, who's, who's my peer and partner. And, you know, but I work very closely with our CIO as well. And, you know, I say up front, my organization, we have a governance organization. They are responsible for governance and compliance of technology. But the key there is in that partnership, I sort of look at it as the Marines and Navy, um, where, you know, IT is the Navy, right? And, and they've got the ships and they're doing all the operations and they're carrying us places and the Marines are, are there to manage those front lines. I think that the reason why there has to be collaboration as different branches is because the command focus is different. For, for me, I'm focused on, like I said before, those proactive activities, the management of the culture, um, all of the business process oriented stuff. Our IT organization is focused on the tech. And so when I need tech put out, I'm relying on them to get it done. But we're also providing that governance. It's difficult to do when your boss is the person you're governing. And yeah. <laughs> Um, you know, there's also a little bit of incongruity for people who are dealing with security. If they think of it as an IT discipline, it reinforces that idea that it's, you know, you've got IT that's already in the back room, completely different conversation right. for another day, but, but IT needs to change that. And then you've got security in the back room behind the back room. Right? <laughs> and, and, and so I think, you know, in order to get it out in front, not just for the users, but also for your board, also for your executives. And to a certain standpoint, if you're a public company, for your shareholders. I know yeah. that our company's shareholders have a much more, uh, I should say, a much clearer view of the investment that this company makes in securing its data, its employees, its customers, um, compared to other financial institutions and I think one of the reasons for that is because in, in our structure, you know, I have, I report to the chairman of our board and holdings company, and, um, I don't, I don't have to go through a whole bunch of filters. I don't have to have, you know, the things that I think, um, filtered or interpreted in any way I can provide direct information on risk to the people who have to manage it. Cause let's remember when a breach or something happens, I have never seen a CIO or a CISO up in front of that press doing a mea culpa, right? That's it's right. <laughs> always the CEO, right? So I think right. even for CEOs who have technology organizations, it behooves them to have their CISO as their partner um, in, in, in helping them understand the risk and in helping them understand all of the things that go into mitigating that risk. Okay. So let's ask, uh, you know, in terms of that risk, what is the role of frameworks? You're, you're super familiar with COVID, ITIL, ISO 27, 1001, et cetera, et cetera. 
how should an organization practically use those types of frameworks? And I didn't mention all of them. There's a whole bunch out there. But what do you see of their role in, in your security function? You know, the truth is the healthcare industry and the finance industry, um, we've got a leg up because we have really good frameworks built for us. In finance, it's FFIC. And uh, in, in healthcare, it's HIPAA. The key there is you got to follow the framework. <laughs> I think that that's number one. You got to follow it, and 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 your program needs to be based on said framework. I think for most other businesses, the MITRE, ATT, and, and CK framework yep. is definitely the best. Um, you know, probably the easiest to follow from from a number of standpoints, but also very easy to implement, in my opinion. It's about changing a framework and then building your strategic plan around it. And you can't boil the ocean, so you have to focus on the most important facets first. Um, so I would say all of the things that focus on the folks, on the, on the people in your organization, um, and, and being able to consistently monitor and have clear visibility across all areas, um, the controls that shut down shadow IT, and this goes back to that conversation about you know the partnership with IT, one of the easiest things for security to be able to do is provide IT with feedback on usage. So a lot of times uh, we call it work style here where people okay. have a work style. It's, it's the flow that helps okay. them do their job. Um, when you have folks that find a certain tech doesn't fit their work style, what do they do? They find workarounds. That workaround yes, might do. be exporting data into a spreadsheet, right? Um, which might not be as secure as the application itself. That workflow might be emailing people confidential stuff. And so yes. from a security standpoint, being able to provide that governance and knowing what, what's in their work style, I think is also very, very important. I would focus from a framework standpoint on all of the, the internal things that ensure people are covered first and then start paying attention to all the outside things. Um, and, and that's just from uh, a risk standpoint, because I think that we have a, f a fairly strong confidence in the infrastructure these days, recognizing yes. that the people are that one thing that continuously change that we have to continuously manage and, and mitigate for. So, you know, that's, um, that's really, really good advice. When you look at these frameworks, I think um, part of what you're describing is a really uh, a frictionless model or as frictionless as you can have it be. And that's stemming from that fundamental concept that you're not the policeman, you're the fireman yeah. in the situation, yeah. right? Because you get like shadow IT, that's a big problem. Yeah. And it's prevalent all across the industry. Yeah. But why does that happen? It's because the end user is going to do their job regardless. Their bonus, their livelihood is dependent on them doing their job. Yeah. And if your job is always to say no, at some point, they're just not going to listen. That's right. That's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. And I don't know that that I don't know that that's something that you can change. The 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 psychology involved in all of this is is very important. And remembering that, you know, employees in a building are people. People just have stuff that they do. And like you said, at the end of the day, getting a job done is, is it's important to people's livelihoods. And so they're going to get that job done 
if you're in the way, they're going to find ways around you and then they'll apologize later. Right. That's right. But but no one ever fires a productive person for doing something they weren't supposed to do. You, <laughs> you know, you fire people who don't do what they're supposed to do. But when somebody is being productive and maybe using a system that they're not supposed to use, you know, one of those common things that you see. I'm sorry, I'm going to call them out here. Box. Right. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's a file sharing app. And because of the way it's designed, it could completely get around your security controls, right? Unless you go and block the domain in and of itself, which we've had to do. Um, and so, you know, when, when users need to share files and it's too big for email, guess what? They're going to use Box. And now you've got to yep. worry about the controls that they put around it because it's not federated with your AD. And you don't know if they have a great password on it. You don't even know that it exists. So when that person leaves, they continue to have information potentially to, to, or access, I should say, to information that they shouldn't have. And so, you know, shadow IT is very, very dangerous. Implementing those frameworks with a people focus is extremely important to preventing and cutting down shadow IT. So I, I guess, you know, you mentioned the term psychology, which often is not used in a cybersecurity conversation, and it really should be. What I have personally not seen a lot of discussions on when it comes to psychology is the motivations of the adversary. What drives a bad actor? In your years of doing this, what have you seen as motivations in, in those successful breaches or where they have compromised things? What 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 are the bad guys? Uh, what are they thinking? It's changed. Um, it's changed dramatically. I would even... I would even go as far as to say it's changed over the last four years. And to a certain standpoint, the pandemic changed it even more. Um, it started out, you know, back in, in the dial-up days, um, which is funny that I'm saying back yeah, in the dial-up days, and it wasn't even that long ago, right? No, that wasn't. That's the mid-90s. Right. That... It was not that long ago. But it wasn't back in the dial-up days, you know, Amazing. the idea was it was – something neat to do for hackers, right? Oh, sure. I can disrupt something. Oh, I can deface something. Um, oh, I can break something and, you know, be able to sit back and revel at it. What's changed into now is a business. I still get tripped out by the fact that some of these, um, you know, for lack of a better term, companies that actually put out software as a service to help hack that is oh yeah amazing to me um ransomware as a service man it's you can... amazing and they put out press releases which is just it's it's staggering it's like are you serious you've got like a press core and you're putting out press releases to announce that you've stolen some 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 stuff and you're going to be publishing it it has and they have service. 800 customer service numbers. Yes. So you can dial them toll free. Customer service <laughs> and the whole nine yards. It is amazing to me. Um, and I think the motivations have completely changed. It's all about money now. And to a certain standpoint, it's about reputation. I think that there are some organizations out there that are still hacking for money, but their whole idea is to embarrass and 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 hurt you as a company especially the nation state um actors who you know when you see when you see russian 
and Belarusian organizations hit in the United States is because they want to embarrass those businesses and they want to embarrass those infrastructures. Sure. It's definitely changed over the past couple of years. And those guys are really hard to stop. I, I don't know that one can. Right. I mean, if you have 5,000 PhDs that wake up every morning trying to figure out vulnerabilities, it's a it's a tough road to hoe on that one, right? I, I don't know how successfully you stop that. Uh, you the know, money guys. Honestly, you know, I, I do think that part of it um, comes back to the industry. We do have to stop assuming that our best and brightest technologists and security practitioners come from Ivy League schools. They don't. Um, you know, sometimes we just need someone who's creative. Sometimes we just need someone. And that is the second controversial comment. <laughs> right. That's awesome. And and you're from Yale, so. <laughs> well, in fairness, I went later, okay? <laughs> um, and, but please continue on. That well, and, 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 you know, the Yale thing was for business, honestly. Um, you know, when, when I think about the tech side, you know, I have to say um, the idea that it used to be that the best way to know that you were getting a really tech savvy person was by the certs that they got, right? And we would always pay attention to the complexity of certs as sort of proof of life that they know what they know and, and that they're really sharp and that sort of thing. Now certs are really dependent on how well a person can study. I think it's probably always been that way and we're just figuring it out now. And you know, from, from a collegiate standpoint, I have yet to see a college that really prepares someone for cybersecurity as a discipline. Um, yep. You know, you can teach them the mechanics, but they can learn the mechanics on their own too. You can learn Linux and Security Onion and, um, you know, and Burp Suite and some of those things. You can learn those things on your own, right? Um, and, and be just as effective. I do think that these days, security is a creative discipline where, um, you know, if you're looking to figure out what your adversary is going to do, if you want to purple team it or blue team it, figure out, you know, yeah. what, what your adversary is trying to do, um, you need creative people who think like an adversary. And you don't get that from college. So when you're looking for analysts to bring into your program like we've done, um, you want to find people who have security savvy, and then through the interview process, take the time to actually learn how deep are they, right? Um, and, and bring people in that way. It can't be that you're looking for, you know, 15 years plus 30 different certs and a master's degree. I just don't think that that gets you there anymore. Oh, wow. That, that's, uh, that's brilliant. I uh, am on the board at a local university here. And one of the suggestions I've given them they haven't implemented it yet, so they'll remain nameless. But I keep trying to convince them, you guys got to get some classes in here that talk about the psychology, that talk about how do you gauge an adversary and get into the creative side of things. I don't think that's a part of any cybersecurity program across the country. I don't think so. The only place we I've seen it done is U.S. Cyber Command, where they actually sit down and they talk about well, what's motivating the enemy, right? You, it's not talked about otherwise, generally. It really isn't. Well, 
So, uh, Andre, I know we're coming up on the hour here. Just uh, I always want to leave the last couple minutes. Uh, if you want to throw plugs out there for any organizations, talks, books, anything that uh, you it's your floor, anything that you would like to uh, make our audience aware of. Well, I'll tell you that um, I do think that it is very important for security organizations to build internship programs, um, to, to seek out, you know, summer high school students. Some of these kids are really sharp. Um, you might find diamonds in the rough. Definitely seeking out tech schools. You know, when you do your internship program, don't just go for the, the top area colleges, right? Um, look in non-traditional sources so that you can find people who are um, who are savvy. Because I do think that um, the the well-educated security practitioner is becoming less effective. Than the person who learned it, figured it out on their own, um, and and is is creative in their approaches to to cybersecurity. I just think that that's true, and there needs to be some balance, right, um, between the two. And the other thing that I have to say is, you know, from a diversity standpoint, we hear this all the time. You know, I'm I'm a black man. I don't see a lot of folks like myself in this profession. I don't see a lot of women in this profession. I think that by opening up our networks, it gives us more of an opportunity um, to to see other people, right? And not just the folks in the circles that that we're in. And so it's very important, again, with internships, co-ops, it gives you an opportunity as a leader to, to bring more resources into your org. Um, but I think it gives a lot of individuals who might otherwise not have gotten a chance to, to come into the org. Don't just look for IT folks. Don't say, hey, you had to be on a help desk for, you know, for five years before you can even apply for this job. Um, I, I think that that old way of thinking just needs to disappear. Uh, what you're describing is how a lot of the top consulting houses recruit, right? They're looking at personality, acumen, how your ability to communicate. They're looking for a lot of things that are beyond the core of the subject matter, right. if you will. Right. Yeah. And that's how, and they're looking for, most importantly, motivation. Right. Are you a motivated individual? Right. Uh, you you bring up great points. I mean, the whole thing of diversity can be in a, a, an episode in itself. For sure. Yeah. Um, but I'm glad you highlighted it. And Andre, I want to thank you for being on the show. Uh, it was a delightful conversation. Really loved the insights. And I'm sure our audience is going to like thank it you. too. My pleasure.